If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think he is perhaps the best window onto the development of medieval knighthood in the 12th and early 13th century. Because he lived through the precise period in which this class was emerging and in which the ideal of chivalry was being forged. That was Thomas Asbridge talking about William Marshall in a lecture he delivered at our 2015 History Weekend at Malmesbury. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today we're going to be broadcasting a lecture from our 2015 History Weekend event that was held in the Wiltshire town of Malmesbury. The speaker was Thomas Asbridge, who is Reader in Medieval History at Queen Mary, University of London. The subject of his talk was William Marshall, the famed medieval knight who was one of England's leading figures of the 12th and 13th centuries, and about whom Thomas had written a popular biography earlier that year entitled The Greatest Knight. I want to start with a quotation. Now listen, my lords, there is honour to be won here, a chance to free our land and win this battle. 
Shame upon the man who does not strive this very day. For the enemy is ours for the taking, if courage and bravery are not found wanting. And if we die, God will place us today in paradise. Of that I am completely certain. With these stirring words, we're told, William Marshall, the man we see depicted in his tomb effigy in the Temple Church in London, the Earl of Pembroke, arguably England's greatest knight, and then regent to the boy king, Henry III, sought to rouse his 700 troops as they marched on Friday the 19th of May, 1217, to confront a mighty French invasion force here at Lincoln. William was an old man, perhaps of 70 years, a veteran of many wars, trials, and perils. Yet this would be the great battle of his life. And despite his age, he would fight in its front line. It fell to him as regent and ruler to stem the tide of rebellion and incursion, to defend the crown and the kingdom, knowing that defeat could well herald destruction. A lifetime earlier, this same William Marshall, then a boy barely five years of age, had been held captive and almost executed by another English monarch. In 1152, King Stephen reigned. Through a period of anarchy, as a rival dynasty waged a bitter and brutal civil war for the crown. Now, at this moment, young William's father, John Marshall, who was a party to this rebellion, found his castle at Newbury besieged by the king. This slightly innocuous and uh, unrevealing image, and I promise you not all of my slides are going to be quite so uh, abstract. I know it just looks like a little mound of earth, and in many ways it is. It's one of the sites that we might associate with this particular fortress sometimes called Newbury, sometimes called Hampstead Marshall. There's a long and ongoing debate about exactly where this stronghold was located. This is one of the candidates. So this, this stronghold had been besieged by King Stephen. At this moment, John Marshall proffered his diminutive fourth son, William, as a hostage to buy time, but then promptly exploited the lull in hostilities to resupply and garrison Newbury stubbornly refusing to surrender. Appalled and enraged by this duplicity, King Stephen, quote, ordered the child to be seized and taken to the gallows for hanging in full sight of the fortress. In a calculated show of indifference, John responded that, again, I quote, he did not care about the child since he still had the anvil's and the hammers to forge even finer ones. Seemingly unaware of his fate, the boy William was duly marched to the gibbet. Today I want to pose one essential question. How did this condemned fourth son of a minor noble rise to become perhaps the most famous knight of the Middle Ages? A man lauded as a peerless warrior and a supposed paragon of chivalry, a figure who ultimately would rule and defend England itself, a man who too would play a central role in the history of Magna Carta, a document that, not surprisingly, we've heard so much about 
in this, the 800th anniversary year of its creation and sealing. And it's that role that led him to being immortalized in this uh, rarely seen statue erected in the 19th century in the House of Lords. He looks down on the House of Lords. It's notable that uh, some of you may have gone to the British Library's extraordinary exhibition on Magna Carta. It really was a wonderful, uh, a wonderful exhibition and a tour de force, I think, on the library's part. But I got slightly irritated by the fact that they decided not to choose William Marshall as their, their figurehead, as their key individual, to represent as a statue from amongst all of those in the House of Lords linked to Magna Carta. Instead, they chose this individual, Geoffrey of Mandeville. And I, I thought I was gonna end, this was going to end up in a sort of long argument with the people at the British Library, not least when I went in April to speak there. It just turned out he was the easier statue to get out of the building. That's the main reason... <laughs> I thought there was some calculated plot, but there was not. So what I want to ask is, how can we explain the meteoric ascent of William Marshall? Of course, it's true to say that he was not born into total obscurity or anything like poverty. But he can certainly have had no expectation that he would achieve what he did. And in many ways, I would argue that his career was unparalleled in the Middle Ages. Along the way, I also want to reveal why I think William's life is so intriguing, why it opens up so many different areas of the medieval era. I guess to answer the question why we should be fascinated by William Marshall. And perhaps first and foremost, the most most direct answer to that is that we are uniquely well positioned to talk about him as a historical figure. And much of that comes down to this particular document. So this is Um, the sole surviving manuscript copy of what we can essentially call the history of William Marshall, a Norman-French biography describing his life and his exploits. It was originally composed within about five to six years of William's death, and we know it was commissioned by his son and heir, and the copy we're looking at probably dates from somewhere between 1225 and 1250. Today, it resides in the Morgan Library in the heart of Manhattan. And I can tell you, there's nothing quite as discombobulating as spending a wonderful day or succession of days locked away in their fantastic reading room, poring over this manuscript, and at the end of the day, walking out into the heart of one of the most modern, staggering cities in the world. You feel like you literally are moving between centuries and and human eras. But it's this document, this manuscript, this biography, that I think takes William Marshall from being just another name in history putting us in a position where we can start to reconstruct him as a man, as a living, breathing human being. Now, a central truth of this document is, of course, that it is innately, inherently biased. It sets out to paint a glowing picture of William. But I I would suggest that we can actually turn that bias to our favour, because what that allows us to do is to construct a picture of what was considered to be a perfect night in the late 12th and early 13th century. It gives us a sense of the moral codes, the shared social customs of the day that informed William's world. And some of those beliefs, shared principles, I think you might find quite surprising. So in many ways, drawing upon this source and contextualizing it amongst a broad array of other material, I'm going to argue that William's life serves as an ideal window onto three interlocking themes or stories. 
So on the one hand, we have this individual's life and a picture of human experience. And it's important in this regard that William was so long-lived. Uh, we think he lived to around the age of 72, which is no mean feat given that we think the average life expectancy in the 12th century is around 48 years. So he, he has an extended life and a life in which he makes his mark throughout that period. He doesn't go into a long, sustained period of retirement or disappearance from the record. And that allows us to look at issues of childhood, adulthood, and old age. Secondly, I think he is perhaps the best window onto the development of medieval knighthood in the 12th and early 13th century. Because he lived through the precise period in which this class was emerging and in which the ideal of chivalry was being forged. So we might... Uh, to, to get a sense of this, we also need to recognize that this is not a static concept. The idea of knighthood is evolving, developing, changing through this, this period. This is, a, a, of course, a very famous image. It's taken from the Bayer Tapestry. It depicts the Battle of Hastings in 1066. What we're seeing here uh, is the moment of the death of Harold. Here we have uh, Harold. He's being killed either with an arrow through the eye or he's being chopped down with a sword or potentially, uh, historians still argue, maybe it's both forms of death that he's suffering during this battle. But what this image reveals to us is the, the kind of technological situation of knights at this point. So we see the classic conical helmet with a single nose piece. We see male armor, tightly packed interlocking metal rings, covering a large swathe of the body, but not full covering. And most crucially, we see that in this battle, the Normans are fighting on horseback, whereas the Anglo-Saxons chose to rather, perhaps not quite as cunningly as you might expect, chose to ride up to the battle, then promptly dismount and fight on foot. And we, we, can, we can see one of the critical markers for William's life is that ability to fight on horseback. It is perhaps the emblematic marker of knightly status. But if we move more than 100 years forward and we look at this object, I have to confess that I'm not quite sure I'm, I'm at, uh, needing to go and see a psychotherapist about this, but I am worryingly obsessed with this object. I can seem to stare at it for hours and hours. And it's one of the great benefits, one of the great luxuries of publishing a book on this kind of subject, is when you're putting the plate section together, you get these enormously high-resolution images. This is a, a seal die or a seal matrix. It's essentially the thing that's used to put a validating seal, wax seal, onto documents. And it actually belongs to one of William's contemporaries in the early 13th century and one of his opponents in the whole story of Magna Carta, a guy called Robert Fitzwalter, a leading baron. But it reveals a whole array of interesting leads, but I'll confine myself to talking about just one in particular, and that's the military technology that we see here. So, of course, again, we see him very proudly astride his horse. But if you're able to look in detail, then you'll see that he's wearing male armor that literally covers him from head to foot. And he has a newly, more advanced type of helmet, all-enclosing helmet. And he has that, that other emblematic feature of knighthood. He's bearing his sword. That kind of military technology, which was prevalent through William Marshall's adulthood and certainly in the latter stages of his life, essentially marked out medieval knights as the modern equivalent of a tank. These were individuals that were almost invulnerable to, my, to the large majority of forms of attack. Only crossbow bolts, really, could threaten this kind of armoured individual. It set them apart. It's part, I think, of one of the critical processes that 
create the idea that knights are part of a military elite. And William, through his career, gives us a, a wonderful entry point into that process of evolution. The third area where I think William is so revealing is that he gives us, in addition, a front seat through one of the most remarkable and tumultuous periods in medieval English history. Because he served at the right hand of no fewer than five English kings and knew some of the great figures of his day, including Eleanor of Aquitaine and Richard the Lionheart. This manuscript, which is uh, from Matthew Paris, sets out those five kings that he served. You can see at the top register the great old king of the, of the 12th century, the masterful creator of what we call the Ungevin realm, a realm that not only included the Kingdom of England, but stretched across most of what we'd think of as Western France. So that's Henry II, as you look at it, uh, on the left-hand side. Then on the right, in the upper register, we see Richard I, Richard the Lionheart, the man who became king in 1189. Today, I'm not going to talk about him um, too much, but one of my great, and that's a great sadness for me, just because of the compression of time, but one of the figures that I became most fascinated by and continue to be really intrigued by his uh, career and the way he's in many ways been eradicated from popular memory of the 12th century within Britain is the man who just sits within the little archway. That's Henry the Young King, the elder son of Henry II, the man who everyone expected to become the next ruler of the Angevin realm. Essentially the, the golden child of this era and a man who was very, very closely linked to William Marshall's own career. And then if we look at the bottom register, we see, I suppose I will say, the infamous King John on the left-hand side, and the man who becomes Henry III, who we'll hear more about shortly. And it's in the, the latter stages of William's career that we see this period, a return to a period of turmoil and civil war, of baronial rebellion, which culminates in the forging and formulation of Magna Carta. 800 years ago. And it's worth remembering that William Marshall played a really integral role in the, in the road that led to Runnymede. We should remember, I think, that the original Magna Carta, that which was agreed and issued in 1215, was essentially a peace treaty. It had a very short-lived existence. Indeed, within a few months, it was null and void. And by the end of that year, it had been disavowed by both sides. In fact, the critical step in rejuvenating Magna Carta, the reason why, I would argue, we're having an anniversary on this 800th year, is that once King John had died and William Marshall had been appointed as regent for the young Henry III, William decided, alongside the papal legate, to reissue a new version of Magna Carta. First in 1216, and then this is the document we see here, the 1217 Magna Carta, which now sits in the Bodleian Library, issued on the 6th of November in that year. I wanted to just hone in. There are many things about Magna Carta that are fascinating. But just to, to show you why it's gained its, its, its fame, its position, in, uh, in the sense that it's regarded as a touchstone of democracy and civil rights. And much of it comes down to uh, this central pairing of clauses. In the Latin it says, nullus liber homo capiatur, vel impresonetur, aut deseatur, aut ut lagatur, 
So no free man shall be taken or imprisoned or dispossessed. And it goes on to talk about uh, the fact that judgment should only be carried out by a man's peers or by the laws of the land. Essentially encoding a fundamental freedom from royal tyranny. And we can see from this document William Marshall's fingerprints, his presence in reissuing, rejuvenating Magna Carta in two ways. We can see, first, his seal. I showed you the larger seal die. Interestingly, he, he retained a much smaller, less impressive seal die, seemingly from his early knightly career. But it's appended here at the bottom of the document, next to that of the papal legate, Guala Vicieri. And we can see, too, that he's mentioned right at the bottom of the document, where he's described very specifically as William Marshall, Earl of Pembroke, our guardian, and the guardian of our realm. So this, I would argue, this document, perhaps more than anything else, is a palpable, material example of William Marshall making history in front of our eyes. So having made a brief case for William's significance, I want to return to the central question. How do we account for his remarkable career path? And to do that, I'm going to explore a range of interlocking themes and factors. And the first of these might seem rather basic, and it is luck. Because I think throughout William's career, he showed himself to be remarkably fortunate, sometimes at critical moments where a little bit of misfortune could have projected him and propelled him in an entirely different direction. In one respect, the idea of luck takes us actually right back to his earliest days, his earliest recorded moment in history. At the age of five, when, as I described at the start, in 1152, he was being held hostage and his life was in danger. I think he was very fortunate to survive this encounter, this repeated suggestion that he was going to be executed by the then King Stephen. According to the history of William Marshall, his biography, he only managed to escape because he essentially charmed the king with his innocence. He's supposed to have seen a catapult and hopped into it and, and suggested that it was a swing that he was going to play in. And this re reminder of his innocence, his youth, supposedly stayed the king's hand. This story is not corroborated elsewhere, so we have no way of knowing if this is William's conjuring of his own past a reflection of the kind of stories that he may have told his men that were then repeated and encoded in the history, and whether, uh, in fact, the close proximity with a moment of death was a little bit more terrifying um, than the story actually suggests. Certainly it's the case that he, he was eventually released. And in the years that followed, I think he was remarkably fortunate to be noticed and then drawn into the inner circle of Europe's most powerful family the Ungevin dynasty. This connection was first forged uh, through Eleanor of Aquitaine. This is one of a range of images that, that have a somewhat spurious claim to be uh, of Eleanor. It's one of the few images that I could show you of a woman, so I thought I'd like to get an image of a woman into my talk if I could. And the connection is forged uh, for William in 1168, when he finds himself positioned within a military retinue, a body of knights who are detailed to protect Eleanor as she's trying to hold on to Angevin power in southwestern France, in Aquitaine. This is the moment, by this point, of course, when Eleanor has become Henry II's wife. That moment brings me to uh, the second quality that I want to talk about. Uh, I'm going to show you this rather beautiful uh, manuscript image. It's called The Peraldus Vices and Virtues of a Knight. Um, 
just so you've got something, something lovely to look at while I'm talking about this second theme, which is physical fortitude. Because when, in 1168, William found himself in this detail, protecting Eleanor, her entourage was set upon by a sudden and deadly raiding attack. And it fell to William Marshall to cover Queen Eleanor's retreat. And it seems to be this moment that brought him to her notice. For William, however, the position was pretty bleak. He found himself ringed by opponents, essentially fighting a last stand to protect the Queen's flight. And ultimately, he was felled from behind. We're told that he he backed up against a hedgerow, and one of his devious opponents ran around the back of the hedgerow and stabbed him through the upper leg uh, with a spear, straight through the thigh. And in one of the most evocative moments in the, the history of William Marshall, his biography, we hear that this wound left the ground below him pooled with blood, seeping from his injury. In the aftermath of this, Marshall was taken prisoner and treated very roughly. But he still recovered. It seems that he he was basically left to tend to his own wounds. And for many a man, many an example elsewhere in history, we might have expected him to have died. But he survived and again uh, was eventually ransomed under the direction of Queen Eleanor. And that physical fortitude that enabled him to survive that encounter, I think also plays a part in his incredible longevity, living into his 70s, being able to fight through the last majority of his career and being able to shrug off the kind of physical hardship uh, that knights in his era had to face. We might also suggest that that physical fortitude played into my third theme. This is maybe the one that you would expect more than any other. And that's exceptional military skill. I think there's really no doubt that William was one of the greatest warriors of his age. It seems that he's the only man who bested Richard the Lionheart, England's great warrior king, in single combat in 1189. So how can we chart his expertise? Well, in part, his abilities conform to what we might expect. He was, perhaps above and beyond anything else, a brilliant horseman. That was an absolute requirement, to thrive in this era where being able to fight on horseback as a mounted warrior was essential. You had to live and breathe and constantly train in horsemanship. It's true to say that William was also very handy with the main weapons of a knight, either the lance or, as we see here, uh, the usually one-handed, double-edged sword. This is a beautiful example, perhaps slightly later than William's own period, perhaps mid-13th century, now sits in the Wallace Collection. I'm teaching, currently teaching a module on knighthood to my undergraduates, and by, by lucky chance, I've managed to... Um, finagle our way in to go and see this this exact sword, A451, this most amazing object, which I've also been very fortunate to hold once. If you ever get a chance to go to the Wallace Collection, go see the sword. I I think it's one of the greatest survivals of a weapon from the Middle Ages anywhere in the world. It's also true to say that William's physical fortitude enabled him to to be capable of fighting in the kind of armour that I described at the start. Here we see an example, a modern recreation, has to be said, of mail, these tightly interlocking, packed rings of metal. You have, to be, you have to train many years to be able to have the strength to fight effectively wearing this kind of type of armour. It's true also that William demonstrated, in many instances, a kind of uh, courageous and cool-headed ability to thrive in the midst of war. All of those things, I think, might be the kind of martial skills that you would expect. But in many ways... 
there are other aspects of his career that are more surprising. Because I think William had the cunning and the agility, and by agility, in, in some ways, I mean moral agility. That's a polite way of saying he's devious. To thrive in the midst of the great craze that was gripping the medieval world, the medieval aristocratic world in the 12th century. And this is the world of the tournament, the emerging cult of fascination with these war games that were at the mainstay of knightly culture. This is a, a later manuscript illumination which shows it's, it's a later exemplar of tournament activity. And, and one of the distinguishing features of it is what you see here are, surprise, surprise, a, a group of maidens looking down agog at the spectacle below them. In fact, in William's lifetime and his key period of engagement with the tournament craze in the 1170s, these weren't the kind of mannered jousts that damsels would observe. This was, these were war games played out sometimes in a field 30 miles wide between two opposing sides. And the aim within them was to capture opponents, to ransom them, and thus gain much-needed money while also engaging in military training. And this, this is the critical thing and also making a public demonstration of your martial prowess. And the, the key point here is that the main audience are not onlookers. The main audience are your peers. The other people who are engaged in these kind of wide-ranging war games. Uh, they're the, the fellow knights that you're trying to impress. And all of this meant that someone like William Marshall, thriving in a tournament setting, could gain a reputation. Now, William's favourite tactic in tournaments, from a modern perspective, I would suggest seems positively disreputable and underhand. But what's striking is that it's lauded by contemporaries, including the history of William Marshall, and described in glowing terms in many ways. So his technique was this. He would arrive with his entourage, or the lord he was serving, at a tournament. The tournament would be about to begin, and they'd say, well, actually, we've come along to watch, but we're feeling a bit tired, so I think we'll just we'll stay on the sidelines today. Have a good tournament, we'll watch, and we'll, we'll meet you at the end. Let things begin, the chaos would ensue, and then when everyone else was exhausted, William and his men would decide that actually they weren't just going to sit on the sidelines. They'd ride onto the field, mop up as many prisoners as they could, and achieve a stirring and striking victory. And remember, even sources that are very positive about William present this as the kind of cunning that you would expect from a knight. This is an example of William's life showing us that the, the code, the ideal of chivalry, doesn't always conform to our expectations. I think it's also true to say that William, as he climbed the ladder socially and entered the royal court and eventually became a major landed baron in his own right, demonstrated another important characteristic. This is the period when he starts to accumulate lands of his own, castles on the borderlands of England and Wales and in Ireland. But entering the court meant he'd entered really a different arena, what might be described as a viper's nest of intrigue, with the court a maelstrom surrounding the likes of Henry II and King John, with everyone striving for advantage and the ear of the monarch. An atmosphere of backbiting, and most crucially, attempts by rival courtiers to provoke you into an open show of emotion, of intemperance. And if you demonstrated that intemperance, then that weakened your ability to offer counsel. Because courtiers were there to offer advice to the king, to be even-handed at all times. Now, this is, a, this is no simple trick 
for a medieval warrior. So we have to remember that William's already shown himself to be capable of thriving in the, in the up-close and personal brutality and violence of medieval warfare. This is it's a beautiful but also uh, distressing manuscript illumination from the famous Majeski Bible or Morgan uh, Bible depicting scenes from the Old Testament but showing them uh, as contemporary 13th century medieval warfare. Uh, I'm not sure how clearly you can see it, but basically we're we're seeing people's heads being cut in half, bodies um, sawn through, eyes plunged out. It's very bloody, it's very gruesome. Um, It is, I will confess, a kind of Tarantino-esque version of medieval warfare. It's a little bit over the top. But I use it as an image to remind you that this is not warfare carried out at distance. This is intimate. This is up close and personal, within your arm's length. And the kind of, the ability to thrive in that setting, I think, suited particular temperaments. And that temperament is not, not really one that's automatically going to thrive and find uh, an easy place in the royal court, an area where you needed to be implacable, where you needed to have self-control and an icy demeanor. And over time, William clearly developed a kind of armor, an emotional and social armor, which left him, at least in public, unmoved And he seems to have used self-deprecatory stories, including perhaps the story about uh, his own near brush with death as a young child, to disarm his opponents. And that combination of being an outstanding warrior, someone who can thrive on the battlefield and thrive in the court, is one of the critical things uh, that I think explains William's career. However, we now reach a few attributes of his personality that are perhaps not quite so attractive, not quite so palatable. Because I think we have to recognize that William was a deeply ambitious individual. Without doubt, he was a massive social climber. And one of the things I found most intriguing, and to be honest, most unexpected when I started researching this project about four years ago, was that his biographer was absolutely open about his hunger for fame. The idea that in an almost narcissistic sense, great knights had to be seen. It's not enough just to carry out a great act of prowess. Someone needs to be there to witness it. Otherwise, it's wasted. And this emphasis on a hunger for fame, the importance of reputation, and the avoidance uh, connected to that of shame uh, is a critical feature of William's career. And one of the things that I think shapes his thought world. It's also true to say that he was um, deeply acquisitive. He was a real money grabber through much of his career. And this is not surprising. We've got to remember that he, he was born the younger son of a minor noble. Throughout his career, he was going to rely on what he could earn, what he could accumulate as a knight. And he was an extraordinarily successful accumulator of money and land. We know, for example, in the 1170s, that he was bringing in so much cash through ransoms on the tournament circuit that he actually had to employ a part-time accountant to keep his books a kitchen clerk named Wigain. It's also the case that William found advancement through patronage. And this was, it's all well and good to make money, cash, on the tournament scene. But what, what knights of William's era really wanted was status and land, a permanence, an ability to make your mark. And that could only come through patronage. And through his connection to the Angevin realm that I uh, talked about before and royal favour, this is exactly what William was able to accumulate. Most notably, when in 
uh, when Richard I granted William the hand of one of England's most eligible heiresses, Isabel of Clare. I hope you can see that image better than I can, I can see it. From where I'm standing, it looks a little bit dark. This is a beautiful aerial view of Chepstow Castle, what was known as Trigoy Castle in William's day. And in the summer of 1189, when William married Isabel of Clare, he became overlord of this castle and it became one of the, the centre points centerpieces of his lordship on the Welsh march. It's also a site that we know he, he worked hard to improve in the course of his career. So this uh, twin drum-towered entryway is dated into the period just when he becomes uh, ruler of Chepstow. And we also uh, can tell through dendrochronology that this pair of gates, the original gates that have been there since the 12th century, date from 1189. And quite remarkably, they're actually still partially out in the open. They're not enclosed behind glass or anything like that. They're under a kind of eave inside the castle. And if you're very delicate, I probably shouldn't tell you to do this, but it's one of the few places in the world where you literally can reach out and touch a material object that almost certainly William Marshall must have touched himself. These are the original gates. Alongside um, Chepstow, and over time, William Marshall was able to extend his lands and estates across Western England, Wales, and Ireland. We can see some of uh, the areas, in particular Leinster in southeastern Ireland, being one of the the centre points of his um, authority, and also his association uh, with Pembroke Castle. And it's this single major keep tower that we think is associated with his period of rule in Pembroke. So that ambition, I think, was one of the things that led to William's rise right to the top of medieval society. But finally, and perhaps most importantly, I want to hone in upon an element of his character that I think has been uh, underrepresented in modern historical writing and perhaps to some extent misrepresented. And that's the quality of loyalty. Because I would suggest that time and again, William Marshall showed an unbreakable loyalty to his lord and to the English crown. In the past, historians have argued that this was essentially a calculation on his part, that he knew that by showing loyalty, things would turn out well for him when uh, events actually transpired and played out. But I think that view is very much governed and determined by hindsight. We, We can look back on William's career and see that at critical moments he took risks and in the end they fell to his advantage. But I would suggest that at the actual moment when William was making these choices, many of his decisions were in support of failing causes, and the choices that he made would have seemed ruinous, incredibly dangerous, and in many respects doomed to failure. The prime example of being confronted by that kind of choice came at the end of his life, and it brings us back to the moment uh, with which I began this lecture. It's the crisis that began with the death of King John. Here we see John in a slightly happier phase of his life, supposedly out hunting. And this is the uh, tomb effigy uh, for John. So when John died in 1216, he left behind a nine-year-old son, the young Henry III. By this point, more than half of England was in rebellion against John's dynasty. Two-thirds of the nobility had turned against him. And London, the great commercial centre of the realm, was out of royal control. Worse still, support for a French invasion force under the Capetian Prince Louis was building. 
At this exact moment, I would suggest that William had everything to lose. He had climbed to the apogee, to the highest possible point of the social ladder. He was now one of the great magnates of England. He was in a position to found an enduring dynasty, arguably the prime ambition of any knight or landholder in this era. Traditionally, it's been argued that he had one of two choices, either to back the young Henry III or to side with the baronial rebels and the French. I actually think he had a third choice, a middle way, and that was to step back from the fray, allow potentially the Angevin stroke Plantagenet dynasty to fall and to weather the storm, either on the Welsh March or in Pembroke or perhaps more likely even in Leinster. But instead, at this most crucial moment of decision, and in fact, very, very close to where you are now sitting, just to the north of Malmesbury, William decided to give his backing to the young Henry III. He met the boy on the road out of Malmesbury and pledged his allegiance to the heir and future king. As a result, William was appointed as regent and began to organise the fight back against the baronial army and the French. That conflict came to a head at Lincoln in May 1217. And it was here that William rallied his forces and delivered, we are told, the speech with which I began. It's notable that William insisted on fighting in the front line, in spite of the fact that he was somewhere in the region of 70 years of age. Though it's worth remembering um, that we're told he almost forgot to put his helmet on just as the fight was about to begin. Things could have turned out quite differently if a squire had not intervened. But there, at the decisive moment, in front of the great cathedral, the French were routed by the royalist troops. That battle broke the back of the French invasion and of the baronial rebellion. And it sealed, I would argue, the future of what we call the Plantagenet dynasty. William Marshall may have been a proud and deeply ambitious man, but I would suggest that his loyalty, his military genius and his martial prowess won him fame and riches. And in 1217, these qualities were also critical to the survival of the English royal line as we know it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why when it came time for William Marshall to be laid to rest in London's Temple Church on the 20th of May, 1219, it's why I believe Stephen Langton, the Archbishop of Canterbury, was right during his funeral oration to declare that the late Earl William had been the greatest night. Thank you for coming. That was Thomas Asbridge. As I mentioned earlier, his book, entitled The Greatest Night, The Remarkable Life of William Marshall, The Power Behind Five English Thrones, was published in 2015 by Simon & Schuster. And his next book, a biography of Richard the Lionheart, is due to be published by Penguin early in 2018. And Thomas is returning to our History Weekends again this year, speaking at both our Winchester and York events. You can find out the full lineups for these and book tickets at historyweekend.com. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. 
you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Okay, so that's about all for today, but please do join us again on Thursday when we'll be joined by Dan Jones and Susanna Lipscomb to talk about the Knights Templar. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, Don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.